It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with the award-winning journalists covering the East End for a bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27East.com, and Express Magazine. My co-host is Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Whoops, we lost you a little bit there. I think you have your. I think your little your connection may be a little spotty today. So, Uh-oh. actually, I'm just I'm just muting you. Okay. Because I've decided I've decided to go rogue today. Can you hear me now? I can hear. <laughs> we can hear you now. Yes, good. We've got you back. Uh, so our panelists today are Michael Mackey, who is the local host of Morning Edition here on WLIWFM. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for sharing the airwaves with us. Good morning, all. Uh, we have Christopher Walsh, who's a staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Good to see you. And uh, Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. How are you doing? So let's have a postmortem. Uh, I think the midterm elections locally turned out just about as interesting as they possibly could have. There were a lot of different possible outcomes, and I think this one is just about as interesting as it can be. Locally, statewide, nationally, there's a lot to take away. So let's talk about what we take away. Uh, the Republicans had, uh, I think Fred Thiel said, the red wave was actually in Long Island Sound uh, because most of the island uh, went very strongly red, really, for the first time. I, that That's the first time we've seen that kind of overall dominance by the Republican Party. And Denise, what I find interesting about this, especially in Suffolk County, so you had a big Republican vote um, for just about every one of the positions that was up. That means a lot of, you know, we have to remember that Democrats and Republicans have a roughly equal, there's a you know a little bit of a disparity, but not significant. But then you have this third group of non-affiliated and independent registered voters that's almost as big as the other two. So it means that that third group must have swung pretty strongly towards the Republican side. It it sure looks that way. And the numbers were um, overwhelmingly Republican, not just in um, the local congressional races, but in every other race as well. I mean, you know, the governor's race, obviously, um, it, you know, the uh, Suffolk County went for um, the Republican challenging Schumer, for the Republican challenging DiNapoli, for the Republican challenging Letitia James. I mean, it was just down the line by wide margins. And um, so I, I agree with uh, if, if you look deal. at If you look at the, the Suffolk County numbers in the gubernatorial election, and, and some of this may be shaped just because Lee Zeldin's the local guy, but he got almost 60% of the vote in Suffolk mm-hmm. County to Hochul's, um, you know, 41%, um, which is, you know, quite a quite a jump from, you know, from the statewide numbers, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it was... It, it created a problem even for a guy like Assemblyman Fred Thiel, who usually cruises to victory. And, you know, I think his, his challenger this time around, Peter Ganley, is a young man who I think, I have to say, really went out and knocked on a lot of doors. I know I know for a fact he did that locally, and I, I think that probably contributed as well. But I think this whole red tide thing, uh, the red wave may well have, have affected that race. It made it a lot closer. I mean, for a guy that's going, what is it, his 14th term in the Assembly, and a, and, and a guy who I think has real bipartisan support. Um, but I think I'm sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, he he ran a very aggressive campaign. He seemed to be funded. And I think that really illustrates that race right there really illustrates like a bigger problem for Democrats in Suffolk County. Okay. You have somebody, a young, young guy. uh, Is he 30? I don't know how old. He's a very young man. His first real political race, right? I mean, he never ran for office before, I don't think. Okay. And look at the campaign he ran against a guy who's like an institution, right? Locally, Fred Thiel, and um, and did well. I mean, came closer than a lot of other you know candidates in the past. And then you have um, 
On the flip side, a, a freshman um, assembly member in the in the, the second assembly district in Jody Giglio, right? Who had who should have been, I mean, you know, by all accounts, you know, someone running for re-election for the first time, it's their most vulnerable, right? Um, what kind of opposition did they did the Democrats muster in that race? And for to, to me, that's really just an embarrassment for the Democrats. Like everything about how they run and fund their campaigns, even when they stand a good shot um, or should stand a good shot, is an embarrassment. Should, they should be embarrassed. I mean, I'm going to say some things here that are maybe going to embarrass you guys and you're not going to want to have me back again. But like, <laughs> I bet I, that's you know, not true. <laughs> I feel like. The party leadership, the Democratic Party leadership in Suffolk needs a major overhaul, okay, and change. And starting at the top, uh, sorry, Rich Schaefer, but, you know, what do they do? I mean, we see that on the local level here in town, in town races. Goose eggs, zero, nothing. Like, And they're not any better on, on the county level and on the state level. And, you know, we see the results of that. We essentially had a fill-in candidate, you know, a name running to against Jody Giglio. How is that possible? Why is that possible? Um, we had more than that in Skylar Johnson challenging Anthony Palumbo, who, again, he's running for re-election in that office, although he's, you know, had other, he was an assemblyman for a while. Um, you know, he did, he, he was more active. You know, he had a campaign website that when you went to it, didn't say, you know, upload content here on it. Like, you know, um, that's that if that doesn't change, the results never going to change. And mm -hmm. I think that's what we're seeing. And I think it, I think I don't know, but I think Bridget Fleming paid the price for that. And uh, there was a really interesting article in The New York Times the day I think the day after the election about how. You know, when when they try to figure out how the Democrats lost ground in the, in Congress, they should look at New York because what was it? Five seats? Bill, Michael, anybody, uh, you know, um, I don't know the number, I, but I, yeah, I think it was five. I, I think I, that's I think that's what it was. It yeah. was significant. Yes. And they, I, the New York I, Times know, I, analysis blamed it on arrogance, Democratic arrogance. And, you know, I, I mean, I, even I, the. the the guy that chairs the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee lost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think that's some of it, but but you know, Denise, I also read a, I an article in the in the Times that, um, and and this is I'm going to give Joe credit on for for this too. The, an article in the Times that said that um, the the abortion issue and the democracy issue played a large part in the election this year. I didn't think the abortion issue would would carry over from the spring, but I think it apparently did. But in states like New York, where that abortion issue isn't um, isn't um, I mean, isn't going to be debated. There's no way that that the that the you know, that the New York um, assembly is going to overturn abortion or look at abortion. It wasn't as much of an issue. So therefore, because that wasn't there, um, it, it just went in, in typical in typical midterm fashion where you see, you know, you see the opposite party gaining steam in, in New York. And I think there were other states like that as well, where abortion rights are, are secured. You, you know, you, you, you didn't see as much of that coming out. In states where it could be an issue, where where they could, you know, the state legislatures could could come up and address abortion, then that became more of an issue. And I wonder how much of but, that. Um, but I, I think that's in the flip side to the argument that a, a, a certain arrogance that like, you know, they I don't think they worked hard enough to press that issue with, among voters and press the, the need to get out the vote and, you know. I'm I mean, curious, though, too, Chris, do you, uh, let me ask Chris, do you, do you yeah. think that the the change here has to do with the message of the Republican Party? I mean, they they had the message, especially in New York. Uh, I think that the message about crime really resonated um, with a lot of people. It, it resonated, you know, even in places 
like the first district where crime really hasn't been a big issue, but I think it, it means a lot to people. And I'm wondering if this, if is this a trend? Are we going to see uh, Suffolk County now being considered strong? It's always been considered sort of um, something that's a, a district that swings back and forth, but is it just a red district now, or was this just a one election, election thing? Well, Lee Zeldin won and won and won and won, and now Nick Lolota has won too, so it's starting to look that way. Um, I was in Manhattan last Saturday, and I have to say that um, it diverged wildly from Lee Zeldin's characterization of it over the last bunch of months, but perceptions do contribute to reality. Um, we know now that a certain Wainscot property owner uh, poured 11 million bucks into a couple of super PACs, which supported Zeldin's campaign, and that's why out from Montauk to Riverhead, at least, uh, and surely beyond, we saw Zeldin signs by the hundreds of thousands, seemingly, uh, against far fewer um, Democratic candidate signs. Um, I want to say, really, that uh, I'm guilty of this, too. But boy, the national press, and I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, um, settled on this late campaign narrative that it's going to be a romp. And by all rights, it should have been a Republican romp nationally. And obviously, it was on Long Island in a lot of ways. But you know, it just never made sense to me that women especially would just forget about the Supreme Court overturning Roe, um, that candidates are openly talking about if if I win, a Democrat will never be elected again in this state. Um, people saying the quiet part out loud, if it's Lindsey Graham talking about um, a national abortion ban, uh, others talking about they're going to mess with Social Security and Medicare. And looming over everything, as always, was Donald Trump, who um, as the conventional wisdom says, had a really bad night on Tuesday um, between Ron DeSantis winning convincingly and uh, his insistence on nominating candidates based on celebrity. So we have um, people like Dr. Oz and uh, Herschel Walker, who honestly, he's, he's barely coherent um, and, and is not United States Senate material. Let's be honest. Um, it never surprised me that Nick LaLota would defeat Bridget Fleming. I think that's just the composition of the electorate here. Um, and I have a somewhat skewed vision because out east, um, we have a five to nothing Democratic supermajority on the town board. But that's not how the district at large and especially in the boat rich western part of, of it um, feels. Yeah, I think that's um, all a pretty, pretty fair read of the situation. And and we forget being, you know, farther to the east where I think it does get a little more blue. Um, that's not typical of the entire first district. And it's certainly not typical of the entire county. Right. Yeah. Michael. So, so, so Donald Trump, uh, is, is he, is he going to be done now? Is, you know, is this a, a failure for Donald Trump is, you know, his, his candidates, his handpicked candidates, didn't win. Is he going to is he going to go away? Is it going to be DeSantis or is, or does he come back um, kicking and screaming and, and fighting as is typical for him? Michael, jump in. I want to hear your thoughts here. Well, in New York, we have a, a pretty strong connection with Florida. Many people that spend six months here spend six months in Florida. Many of the people I grew up with are now living in Florida. And uh, they tend to like DeSantis, and uh, he's the new uh, Republican uh, up-and-coming uh, force. And uh, it's it's quite possible that the uh, party transforms from uh, a Trump-dominated party to DeSantis. It'll be interesting to see that fight play out. The uh, loser and new champion of the world in the state of uh, New York uh, politics, Republican Party, is Lee Zeldin. He's being praised. We talked about this a year ago on uh, Behind the Headlines. Why would Lee Zeldin leave his comfortable congressional seat where he's getting a lot of recognition? He's moving up in seniority and influence to run for governor when no Republican governor has a chance to win because he saw redistricting coming. He thought the New York state legislature would succeed in redistricting to the degree they tried and thought he could probably lose in the first congressional district if that happened. And he didn't want to go out a loser. So uh -huh. he decided he would run for governor of New York State. What was the worst that could happen? He gets beaten in a blue state. He takes one for the party and he moves forward. But he's not a loser. And if perchance he gets really close, he's the gallant loser. And if by some miracle he wins, then he's a superstar, uh, not only in, in the state, but in the country and throughout the world. He got very, very close. I believe that if the election had been held on October 28th, the weekend ending October 28th and not November 8th, he might have won. 
Yeah. Wow. They stopped the bleeding. And and then uh, Governor Hochul successfully uh, and her people reached out to the uh, to the left side of the party and said, you folks better get out there and help because you don't want uh, Zeldin as your governor, uh, despite the fact that you wanted you'd like to see me moved out and replaced by one of you. So they got a they got the Working Families Party, which needed the votes to survive as a party in the first place. And they uh, they saved Governor Hochul. I thought the fact that she won by five and a half, almost six points was pretty good, considering how how low it had gotten. But I, then after the election and the immediate aftermath, I thought, what do the Republicans think of Lee Zeldin? They think, my goodness, we blew it. If we'd had a better, more dynamic, charismatic candidate, we actually could have won. But it appears that the response of the Republican Party and the grassroots and, and beyond from everyone I've spoken to and I've gone out of my way to, to do so is that Lee Zeldin's a hero. He uh, he carried Long Island. The four congressional districts uh, went Republican due in large part because of his coattails. And I can see what he's doing next. Uh, by the way, he's improved. I've been putting him down as not very charismatic, kind of dull and boring and, and not telegenic. But he's definitely improved his game. He comes across much better. And he's even throughout the course of this campaign, he's he's uh, his presentation is better. I heard him interviewed on the radio yesterday. That was a right wing radio interview and they were fawning all over him. But he's a little bit more articulate and a little more. He has lends a little more gravitas to his presentation than he did before. And I can see what he's going to do next. He's going to uh, be the Republican nominee for for senator and run against Gillibrand in 2024. Now, Gillibrand's got to get through a primary in order to be the candidate, too, because I think AOC is looking to move in there. So let's see what and happens. Think, and the question is whether there's going to be staying power for all these changes. But I'm with you, Michael and, and Denise. I'll say it out loud. I mean, I think Lee Zeldin came out of this a winner, even yeah. though he lost that race. I think he, he ended up, uh, he ran, you know, one thing about Lee Zeldin, he can run a very disciplined uh, campaign and he stayed on message. And I think he had a couple of things break his way that, that, that really helped the message that he was, he was focused on and made him look prescient. And I think he benefited from that. But I, I, as Michael said, I think he came out of this race with what he was looking for, which is more of a national uh, he's got more of a national presence in the Republican party now, and we'll see where he goes from here. It's going to be interesting. What do you think happens? Uh, well, I, I agree with everything Michael just said. Um, I mean, you know, the fact that they are coming out of this loss by a, a slim margin by New York standards uh, for a Republican and, and talking about Lee Zeldin's coattails and crediting him for the victories that they had uh, in Congress. I mean, I think that's really significant and kind of like a win win in a losing situation for a Republican candidate for governor of the state of New York. And I think that. The possibility of him, as Mike just said, uh, Michael just said, running for uh, U.S. senator is is pretty strong. I mean, I think you know he's an obvious candidate to turn to. You guys were referring to this earlier with uh, Ganley. Ganley lost, but he did something that's really important. It reminds mm -hmm. me of Lee Zeldin, actually. Back in 2008, Zeldin ran against Bishop. Nobody had ever heard of Zeldin. His name recognition was virtually zero, and he and got pummeled. And people were coming out to vote for Obama, so they voted for the Congressional um, Democratic Party representative, Tim Bishop. But you gradually build name recognition. And so Tim Bishop being uh, um, defeating Tim Bishop in 2014 and then Zeldin serving, uh, uh, getting elected for four terms in Congress, built up his name recognition. He's appearing on Fox News and other uh, programs. But the name recognition that he has now built through this gubernatorial campaign is exponentially grown. He's and people, as we as Chris was saying earlier in frustration, the, the power of name recognition, somebody yeah. just going in the booth and voting for the person because they heard the name, they know the name. It's incredible. It's, I guess it's a, just a part of the human condition, well, but it's, and, it is interesting. And to Joe's point, too, Ganley got 45 percent of the vote against against Fred Thiel, who is an institution who who typically gets 60 to 70 percent of the vote. I mean, and again, to Denise's point, they don't always, um, you know, the Republicans don't always put up a strong candidate against Fred Thiel, um, you know, knowing that. But 45 percent of the vote is certainly not. They will next time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's and, and to, to Michael's point. Yeah, people know his name now. And, 
he he did run a, run a very aggressive campaign, maybe a little too aggressive for 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 my taste. But that's how you that's how you get that name recognition. That's how you get the, the headlines. That's how you get people to pay attention. And and in a divisive uh, in a divisive nation right now, being divisive works. And to your point, Michael, uh, Peter Ganley worked for for uh, Lee Zeldin. So, yeah. um, you know, he he saw I think he probably saw that trajectory firsthand and and is trying to sort of tap that same uh, ride, that same lightning uh, to try and get some re- name recognition for the next time. I thought, it would, you know, it was a successful run for him in that regard. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Our panelists today are Michael Mackey of WLIWFM, Christopher Walsh from the East Hampton Star, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. So let's stay on the topic, though. Uh, Chris, Nick LaLota. What what do we know about Nick LaLota, except uh, one of the things that I, I, I thought he ran a very good campaign. Uh, we had a debate. I thought he performed very well in the debate. Um, he doesn't live in the district, which I find fascinating so now he's going to have to move into the district he he lives in amityville and i, I was, doesn't have to he doesn't yeah, have it was to sort of he, amazing to he has to out, he has you know? to move now before well, he's the, he takes the oath of office i think he has to move into the district i don't i don't just i don't think that's true i think no. he, he said that he was going to, but i don't think he's required he doesn't have to huh no it's really so. fascinating it's, it's not right, something i do coming but, into the race but but Chris, what you know? What do we expect from from Nick Lalota? First of all, what what kind of uh, representative do we think he'll be? I think he's going to be similar to how Lee Zeldin has been. However, without Donald Trump there, there might be a different dynamic in play. Um, yeah, he ran a very disciplined campaign, and he comes across. Um, you know, he he played up his um, veteran credentials, his his family credentials, and. Um, and he he said that he would vote for Kevin McCarthy as speaker, which um, Bridget Fleming tried to use as uh, against him, uh, unsuccessfully, of course. Um, <clears throat> he's um, he he does remind me of Zeldin a lot, um, possibly slightly more moderate. Um, although I think Zeldin himself changed once in Congress from when he was a state senator significantly. Mm-hmm. A number of people told me that who know him personally and worked with him in the, at the state level. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's a, such a curious time. There were so many dynamics in play and variables here, so it's tough. But um, he's he's obviously more a viable candidate than a first timer like Peter Ganley or Skylar Johnson, who, by the way, um, Anna Scranta, chairwoman of the Democratic Committee in East Hampton, calls the future of the party. Mm. And, um, he's a, and, and it's a point that, you know we haven't really talked about Skylar. I mean, he's what is he twenty two. And 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 he ran a fairly good campaign as well, and and a decent showing against uh, an incumbent. And uh, that's an interesting point too. Needs a little seasoning. He needs, you know, he needs to get a little older, I think, and do some do some solid work. But he he's certainly, you know, he 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 hits all the right points for for that party. I mean, he's um he's certainly guy's very well spoken he's very articulate energetic he's also let's just say very progressive he's not necessarily the kind of democrat you see you know running for an office on uh, around here in southern county anyway and winning elections um very progressive and i i to that point i think yeah i i happen to think that that is the future of the democratic party like i think you know being the the middle of the road where you know we're Republican light, as somebody said, um, isn't going to cut it. Isn't going to help them. Um, and so I I agree with that assessment. Um, and he was he was aggressive too in the campaign. I know we're getting off topic a bit against uh, in the um, debate that I saw the League of Women Voters debate against um, Anthony Palumbo, and Mr. Palumbo I would say is about the most moderate Republican in this climate that I've seen, um, and uh, not one to turn off of voters one way or another, I think. So again, not not a surprise to me that that he was reelected. Um it's yeah, he's, been, he's been interesting, right? He 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 uh he moderated his stance on abortion a little bit. And um, you know, I you know, I have to point out that that he's he's running in a in a seat that was held forever by Ken Laval, who was a fairly conservative Republican and but a guy who put 
his district first um, on on a lot of the bigger issues. He was very conservative, but was when, 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 you're, a, when you're a Republican in a democratically controlled legislature, you kind of have to put your district first, right? I mean, if you want to get anything accomplished and get anything done, you've got to come down the middle of the road. And 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 he has. I mean, he he's worked with Fred Thiel on a bunch of environmental stuff. He he co-sponsored the community housing fund um, you know, legislation that Fred's been trying to get passed for for a long time. And, you know, and and he, you know, he came came down kind of in, in the middle there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think back to to what Chris was saying about, you know, Lee Zeldin. When he was first elected, he was kind of moderate and and he was kind of um you know district first you know that type of thing and it wasn't until you know in, until i think the trump era began or maybe a little before that that he started to get a little more um a little less communicative with 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 the press and a little further right and further right and further right and and i think that lalota if if he's if he's smart in in this district will you know, we'll we'll try to work across the aisle a little bit. Obviously, he's got to carry his party's banner. It was his party that that got him elected, and it was part of, you know his party that brought him the money. But but it is a you know it, it's a mixed district, and I I think that um, you know representatives of the first district need to need to be a little across the aisle and working I, together type thing. I do want to point out though that that we have to remember that Lee Zeldin came out of the Tea Party movement. Yeah, right. um, that's what I was going to so, say. So, I mean, I think the roots were there early on, but there's no question. He was he was more moderate early in his political career. And that moment in 2016, 2015, when he jumped on the Trump train. And I, right. and by the way, you know, I will just say that it, that I can tell you that I believe fervently that it was a conscious decision and a political calculation on Lee's part to start with. And I, th- I can tell you that that I think he had real reservations about it. I saw that in conversations with him uh, at the time. He had real reservations about joining Donald Trump's MAGA movement. But very quickly, I think the benefits outweighed the, the downsides, and he was able to, to become a true believer. And I think he has been a true believer. He read his district. He read his constituency. He did sophisticated surveys and said, wow, everybody west of the Shinnecock Canal is a MAGA. Uh, that's, yeah. The those Republican are my people. Party has been radicalized, probably mm-hmm. permanently, by the Trump wing, whatever you want to call it, the MAGA people. I mean, it's not the same party. And I think, as you're saying, Zeldin read that mm-hmm. and uh, astutely. And, and and ran with it. And I think that the question remains whether that's going to hold true going forward. I mean, you know, the last few days, the, in the days immediately following this election, uh, we've seen some pretty remarkable things like, you know, the New York Post having that Humpty Trumpty uh, cover right. They're through <laughs> that, with Trump. that they published, uh, you know, being, you know, Trump being turned on by the Murdoch empire, or, you know, Fox News, et cetera. Um, you know, I don't know how that is all going to work out in the end, <laughs> but uh, there's definitely uh, a sea change happening, I think, uh, as far as, as that goes. However, you know, I mean, you have Peter King, all these people with this like their late awakening saying, well, we, we don't want to be a, a party that's a cult of personality. Well, like, hello, where have you been? Right. You know, um, so I, whether that makes a, a, a permanent change in the Republican Party remains to be seen or whether, you know, there's a, a different party of Trump, like whether the party of Trump breaks off, who knows? But I don't think. I don't think Trump is going away, and I don't think um, his base is is going away. Chris, um, you were going to say I, something. Just caution, right? That we've seen this before, um, and when yeah. when Trump seemed to be fading, you know, mm-hmm. then the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, and uh, suddenly he was back in the news again, and 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 there was a backlash to that in terms of renewed support for him. Um, we may find out as early as next week that he's going to make another run for the presidency. Um, he will be 78 years old in 2024. And I don't know, you know, it seems that his ego demands it. Uh, and that maybe he's calculating that this is the thing that will keep him out of prison. 
right. because, of course, there are active investigations on uh, into his conduct as president and as a businessman. Um, <clears throat> so it remains to be seen. Again, he seems to continually loom over everything. But yeah, it's interesting that announcement, how mm. how the whole uh, feeling of that changed with Tuesday night's results. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people were looking at that as well here we go it's going to start the the 2024 campaign in earnest now now i think that announcement could land with a thud and it could be a very different uh outcome um for trump it's just fascinating it's certainly going to be delayed i mean you know i think that was the point i was trying to make earlier when when his chosen candidate i mean if you had seen dr oz elected on on tuesday night um you, you would have seen Trump announcing on on Wednesday morning that you know that mm-hmm. he was running, I believe. And, he wanted to um, announce before uh, I, I know. before the midterms, no the question. Um, I also think uh, it's interesting that neither party can really declare victory after Tuesday. I mean, I think the Republicans wow. have won. There's no question, and they, and and you know, well, I, I you take Democrat, a step back. I think the, the Democrats are certainly claiming victory because it wasn't a bloodletting it wasn't you know a t- it wasn't a typical midterm election um you know with with a president with a 30 percent approval rating that you know where, where you would you would see you know 50 60 seats you know turnover in in, in Congress. Yeah, I mean, you didn't see except that except around here it was a except, win except, by, in, you know, except on long island it was a win by not losing worse let's put it that way but yeah. that's what's so interesting neither side can really sort of have a victory parade. I think it sort of tempers both sides' victories. So let's talk about one positive thing locally: uh, the community president, uh, the community housing fund uh, vote was approved in both Southampton and East Hampton towns. Uh, that's a big and, deal and for the South Hold and South, and South Hold as well. Yeah. And in Shelter Island, I think the the jury is still out. It was really close, and they are still waiting for absentee va- ballots and some other things. I think it's within the margin of of error, probably. But th- this really, Chris, this this has a real potential to change things in Southampton and East Hampton town. Right um, here in East Hampton, the town board was pushing very hard for the voters to approve this, and they spent a great deal of time with the attorney's office on the wording simply of the proposition just to make sure everyone understood exactly what it was about. Um, there was an advocate for housing outside, um, legally outside of the um, early voting site, which is just up the road from me, who's been a, a real tireless advocate for it. And in the end, uh, the voters here approved it about two to one. Um, this has been, as we all know, the, a, a signature or a, an overriding issue in the town. Um, people need a place to live, and it's just increasingly harder and harder to find it for so many. Um, it's it's huge because it allows so much for the town to do. It gives the town so much as, as a very big tool to wield in creating housing. Can you talk about what some of the tools are? I mean, just briefly, I mean, obviously, a lot of this stuff has already been set in stone, but a lot of it hasn't been. And the towns are going to be able to be nimble in how they deploy the money that comes in, which is going to be millions of dollars a year. Right, right. So I'm cribbing from what I wrote here. It's a, it's a half percent transfer tax on top of the 2% tax that funds the Community Preservation Fund. So buyers of a property would pay that tax with the first $400,000 exempt. Um, money could be spent to buy land and buildings, pay for town-led or public-private construction projects for sale or rent, rehabilitate existing buildings, provide down payment and other financial assistance to buyers, offer loans to construct accessory dwelling units, create housing for employees of local businesses, purchase individual units within existing multi-unit housing complexes and offer housing counseling. So it's it's a broad range of potential tools to use. Um, these projects do take time, but there are a number in development in the town already. So, you know, it's, it's it, and as I said a few weeks ago on the show, as, as a beneficiary or um, one of the lucky buyers of the first ownership opportunity in the town, which you're seeing behind me, it's it's enormous. It just changes my life completely and uh, in um, uh, overwhelmingly in a beneficial way. Michael, we talk all the time of, about, you know, this is something that needs to be fixed. And, um, you know, it's like the weather. Everybody complains. Nobody ever does anything about it. Feels like that was always true uh, with affordable housing, too. But we really have a chance to at least slowly and we have to be we have to be patient. It's going to take a little while, but we can slowly make a dent here, right? It reminds me of global warming and climate change. We've got to take the first step before we can move ahead and, and solve the whole issue. 
Well, Christopher Walsh is a, an inspiration. So it's yeah. glad, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that these uh, these programs actually work, and there are human beings who benefit from them, and allow the rest of us to benefit from what you've uh, been able to do. It's a it's a it's a it's such a, 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 a intense issue on the east end of Long Island, but across the country. That's one of the problems that um, those who are opposed to um, asylum seekers and the way the border is being handled keep pointing out, if you do let these people into the country, where do they live? They're middle-income people who are scrambling from one paycheck to the next to to pay their rent. And how do these people from uh, other worlds with nothing uh, to... uh, no money to bring into the country. Where do they live? Where do they work? How do we cope with them? And um, it's all very challenging. It's that whenever we talk about affordable housing on the East End or anywhere else now, it seems, in the country, I wonder, my goodness. But we've got to take the steps, and that was very encouraging, the vote on, on Tuesday. And uh, I hope our government officials and leaders can implement these programs so that I don't have to drive uh, an hour and a half to get home from Bridgehampton to Southampton uh, half the year. Hey, you know, Michael, one of the things that I always think about when we have these conversations is something that uh, Bob Challoner, who is the chief administrative officer of uh, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, they have dozens, dozens of jobs available right now. They they have openings right now that if they had candidates, they would fill them. they can't fill them. And it's largely because of housing. So these small victories uh, accumulate. If you can start to just, I mean, Christopher, you, you're a, you're a success story with the, with the program. When you start adding more and more of those success stories, they really build on each other. And I, I'm just really relieved because I feel like Fred Thiel, it was a, it was almost 20 years. It took to get this community housing fund legislation through uh, and to finally get a governor to sign it. And that was Governor Hochul. Um, We had an opportunity here on the South Fork to really address the crisis in an aggressive way. And I think the voters took it. And I think that's really to to everybody's uh, credit. I think they saw the moment and they seized it. And I think we'll benefit from it in the long run, all of us. Uh, Except in Riverhead. Except in Riverhead. Riverhead. And maybe Um, Shelter Island. Shelter Island is on the fence. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting that those two towns have a different narrative. I mean, with Shelter Island, it's a little more complicated because it's obviously, you know, an enclosed island that you can only reach by ferry. It's a, a little different kind of community. Riverhead does have lots and lots of affordable housing. I'm going to tell you, though, Denise, I really think that Riverhead may reconsider and just because the the possibility of adding that much money to the flow to 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 help with the efforts that are already in place is going to be too tempting i think i i just want to i want to point out riverhead has three types of affordable housing right now one is uh manufactured home parks that are largely limit age limited to age 55 and over the second is substandard housing rental housing owned by slumlords, okay? And the third, and that also goes for Riverside, so maybe they'll be doing something about that in Southampton. And the third type are these kind of um, what's considered high-rise rental apartments out in Riverhead that are located downtown. They're expanding that in town. They're expanding a number of buildings. And those are typically, um, you know, rather small, rental apartments that um, there's income limitations and rent limitations on them. And they do not provide an opportunity not for home ownership. And they also are, they're, they're expensive. Yeah. They're expensive apartments to rent, even though they're affordable compared to other apartments that are not in that, those programs, but they're still expensive. And by that, and- I mean, $2,000 a month for a one, you know, a relatively small one bedroom apartment. And if so, you live in one, but you work on the South Fork, you have to sit in traffic and, yeah. and it doesn't solve that problem. So housing, like uh, ownership opportunities in housing in Riverhead Town are not affordable relative to the people's capacity to buy them. I mean, they're $500,000 and 
that's a steal in East Hampton. <laughs> okay. But Riverhead's not East Hampton. And you can't convince me that the town can't make use of funds generated by this housing fund. I, I mean, and, and in a different way to supplement what's already there and to help a different segment of the population that's looking to buy a home and settle down and raise a family and et cetera, the things that people generally do, which they're they're precluded from doing here. So I thought that was really short-sighted not to do it. And they have said, well, we may reconsider it next year. Who knows? Uh, money talks. A, a real wild card. Well, and there, you know, talks. also- and When you start to see the money rolling in, um, in these towns and these things that can be done, I think Riverhead's going to have but, to consider. But, but money, money, money talks also in the form of the developers that are building these complex, these buildings. Okay, who employ who, themselves and their consulting firms and their law firms, etc. I'm sorry, donate or contribute a lot of money to the campaign coffers of the local elected officials. I mean, it mm-hmm. almost seems like it's a protection. A protection bracket to stay out of this. I don't, you know, my cynicism runs amok, but um, (laughs) that's why we love you, Denise. You know, I mean, I I think I just think that's a factor here. She's our Riverhead muckraker. Yeah, it's a frank, frank conversation to have. No question. I think you're right. It's behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Bill Sutton, who I just interrupted, is my co-host. Uh, our panelists today are Michael Mackey of WLIW, Christopher Walsh of the East Hampton Star, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Sorry, Bill. Go ahead. That's all right. We're used to interrupting each other. We do it all the time. Yes. Um, I, I just I, I think you're right that that I think we need to be careful. So the CHF was was passed, and there's going to be some money coming in and. Hopefully the towns will be borrowing against future revenue to kind of kick that pot up a little bit. But I, I think we need to be cautious that people don't think, okay, now the problem is solved. And mm-hmm. you know, now we've we 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 work towards passing this, we pass this. Now we can we can ignore it and we can stop supporting efforts to, you know, to provide more housing and work on housing and 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 look at housing. There's there's now the the real work begins, you know. I mean, we've got some money now. Um, and I just hope that uh, the community stays as committed to, to solving the problem um, as, as they have been. I think that's a great point. I think the work really does start now. So let's change gears a little bit. Chris, I want to talk about Truck Beach. There's, uh, you know, it might benefit the listeners who live outside of East Hampton Town to give sort of a 30 second rundown of what we're talking about here. But there have been some new developments uh, in that ongoing legal battle in East Hampton Town. Talk a little bit about yeah. that. Uh, it's, it's new, but it's more of the same, I think, too. Um, well into its second decade, there's uh, litigation between some homeowners associations on the Napig stretch um, who were uh, tired and annoyed with people parking their trucks on the beach in front of their property. Um, they sued and were able to get a judge to declare that the deeds to their properties actually extend to the mean high water mark of the beach, and um, that effectively privatized the beach. Trucks are not allowed to be driven or parked there anymore. Uh, fishermen, especially, are uh, very annoyed about this, and they staged a few acts of civil disobedience last year. The second time uh, they were, by intention, issued summonses, 14 of them were, that is, when they drove across the beach with trucks and a dory. And um, <clears throat> last month, the the um, uh, the the cases were transferred because the East Hampton judges recused themselves, so the cases were transferred. These trespassing summonses were transferred to Southampton Town Justice Court. And because no homeowner filed a complaint, they were all uh, dismissed. The attorney who's working pro bono for the fishermen and residents is named Dan Rogers, and he is uh, triumphant and jubilant and outside of the courthouse was telling anyone who would listen to go go start a bonfire on the beach at 3 a.m. if you want to. Go drive all over the place, do whatever you want there because it's your beach. It belongs to everyone mm. in the town. So what's happened most recently is it's it's lawyers bickering, basically. Um, Stephen Angel, who's an attorney for the plaintiffs, is um, begging in a 33-page motion, begging the judge to hold them in civil contempt because basically he's saying, look, this attorney, Dan Rogers, is bad-mouthing you. He's ridiculing you. What are you going to do about it? 
And um, the judge has already given the plaintiffs everything they want and then some as he's done with East Hampton Airport. So it's it's really more of the same. And um, they're at a standoff. I think the the residents of the town, but especially fishermen, commercial fishermen are are defiant and they're going to continue to um, uh, access that beach. And um, and the plaintiffs are going to continue to, and, I think, and, have and, now and, and now they're going after the town trustees, right? And they're yes. saying that, that, that Dan Rogers was somehow affiliated with the trustees and that the trustees, as well as the, the town board, which was found in contempt mm-hmm. earlier, um, that the trustees should now be found in contempt. They're just going to go after everybody they can to kind of prove their point, right? Right. And because they, they, of course, have common interests, the trustees and the, and Dan Rogers working on behalf of the fishermen. But they but Mr. Rogers does not represent the trustees. That is, um, Mr. Angel is inaccurate in, in trying to, in I believe, in trying to um, make that connection. Right. And we should also point out, Chris, one of the, one of the key points of this is Truck Beach. It, it doesn't really have an impact on other beaches in the town. Right. This was a very specific set of circumstances that had to do with the trustees actually selling right. those that the, those lots to residents. And so th- this doesn't necessarily have a ripple effect of access to all beaches in the town. That it, It's not that kind of a problem, and right? Thanks for that reminder. Yes, in 1882, the town trustees conveyed about a thousand acres of Napig to Arthur Benson, um, for whom Bensonhurst in Brooklyn is named, and a developer in Montauk uh, back in the day. Um, in in a 2016 trial, the judge sided with the town and the trustees, and the the um, the Benson deed contained a reservation that said it that reserves use for the town residents for fishing and fishing related purposes. Um, Dan Rogers and his clients say that, of course, should include vehicles, which didn't exist. You know, automated vehicles that didn't exist in the 19th century. Um, the judge who um, has reversed, uh, who who has um, sided with the plaintiffs, says no. That that's being uh, read far too broadly. It does not include vehicles. Um, it's a back and forth of involving wording and um, and use of the beach. And there's apparently no end in sight. <laughs> the, the, uh, the battle continues, no question. Yeah. So um, we have a couple minutes left, Denise, and I want to talk a little bit about a story. Uh, that that you've done about um, food scrap collection, which I, I find fascinating that the town of Riverhead is is focused on this. I, you know, I think the the amount of food we waste as a society is is a huge issue. Uh, what are they doing? What's the plan? Well, this is something coming out of um, an environmental advisory committee and um, of the town. And they are in a pilot program. They've been collecting food scraps from, a certain number of homes um, and uh, members of the Calverton Civic Association and certain businesses, also, I think, in Calverton. And um, they are depositing those food scraps on a couple of local farms, one that's a, a kind of um, a laboratory, so to speak, at the Horticultural Extension Research Center in Baiting Hollow that's operated by uh, Cornell University, and another being um, a relatively newly opened uh, lavender farm on Sound Avenue uh, near Roanoke Avenue in Riverhood. And um, it's been working out very well. They've collected, they said, over a ton of uh, food scraps since they started this, in, I think, in August. Um, and um, it's going well. I mean, this is, you know, they use these food scraps to enrich the soil. Um, it's kind of a really, you know, what's old is new again, <laughs> and ho- they're hoping to expand the program and um, bring it to more, lo- you know, we have plenty of farms, bring it to more local farms, involve more restaurants and more homes. Um, and this was a demonstration program to show that it really, um, you know, it really can work. Um, is this a kind of program that has a funding um, mechanism that allows it to be self-supporting, or is it something that the town is really going to have to, you know, pay to do? To, well, to I mean, uh, certainly not at the moment. Okay, uh, whether there might be grant opportunities or other things down the road, I don't know. But right now, it's something that the town has endeavored on its own, and it's involved the it's involved the uh, town engineering department and um, and these volunteers on the environmental advisory committee. So, 
My, my, cool dogs, my dogs just perked up. They, they're wondering if they can somehow get involved in the uh, food scraps. Yeah, food scraps. Like that, scraps. We, we recycle food scraps all the time here. Um, but I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a neat thing. I mean, it makes sense. There's just so much food that gets wasted and ends up in, in landfills. Like, you know, so it's interesting, though, this comes at a time when the town is considering <clears throat> the adoption of a code to allow something called an anaerobic digester um to be built in riverhead um what's that the in the industrial park that is a food scrap processing uh facility and it's basically an enclosed you know uh facility that food scraps get put into and um energy and compost comes out of wow um yeah so, I mean, it's a relatively new technology, but not brand new. It exists, and there are these uh, things in other places. And there's a guy who actually is from Wading River who um, has been trying to get this um, the town board to give them a green light to build something like this in Riverhead for a few years now. And it was a question of where it would most appropriately belong. And uh, I think they've settled on the, um, the Calverton Enterprise Park but support for this on the town board does not seem to be unanimous. Uh, they are looking at um, a code that would allow this to happen, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. But again, the, the thing is, you know, is this going to be for food scraps that come from the town of Riverhead, or at least the East End, or are they going to be, you know, getting food scraps from points west in New York City, et cetera, et cetera? There's a certain they need a certain volume in order for this thing to work, and. Just food scraps from the town of Riverhead only are not going to are not going to make it work. Um, and and so. then you're going to create a lot of compost that has to be there has to be a plan for using the compost. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see. But it's, you know, it's it's like this uh, is what I mean. Farmers, this is what people always used to do with food scraps. Right. <laughs> honestly. So yeah. um, you know, it, it's, it's but it's thing. also progressive in a sense because I think we're going to have yeah. to start looking at those ways of uh of dealing with our waste and and maybe trying to turn it into something we can use no question cool stuff absolutely uh we're out of time this week uh great conversation this week uh i want to thank our panelists michael mackey from right here at wliwff thanks michael thank you um, folks i learned something absolutely denise civiletti of riverhead local denise as always you can come back thank you you were okay. <laughs> and uh, Christopher Walsh from the East Hampton Star. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. And thank you to my co-host, Bill Sutton, from the Express Group News Group. And thank, thank, thank you, you to, Joe. Sorry, Bill. Go ahead. I mean, it's just, this is, this is the... You uh, just cut me off all day here. This is the theme. I'm just going to interrupt you. Um, and I want to thank all of our listeners. And we'll see you back again next week. Uh, for another edition of Behind Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for listening.